Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Would you please welcome Columbia recording artist, Bob Dylan. Welcome back to Never Ending Stories, a podcast about Bob Dylan and the Never Ending Tour. I'm Ian. I'm Evan. And I'm Steve. And today's show is May 9th, 1992, at the Event Center Arena in San Jose, California. The band is Bob Dylan, Bucky Baxter on the pedal steel guitar and electric slide guitar, John Jackson on the guitar, Ian Wallace on drums, Charlie Quintana also on drums and Tony Garnier on the bass. The weather on May 9th, 1992, was a high of 87 and a low of 58 degrees. So I'm guessing it was getting close to 58 by the time show started. You know, maybe it was dipping into the 60s. I don't know how quickly it gets cold in California. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating Once here. the sun goes down, it but, starts uh, to get cold pretty quickly. Uh, Steven, this was your show. We're moving into the phase of the program where we each pick our own program to present to the others. Uh, this was your choice, Steven. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on here and why you picked it? Well, I'm going to pat myself on the back for a second for picking this show because I think this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. It is, I think, a great show. It's also kind of a wacky show in parts uh, in the best possible sense. Uh, I'm going to go on a Small digression here, Please. because it was a little bit of a journey that led me to this show. Uh, when I was first getting into Bob Dylan as a teenager in college, uh, there was one author that was my shepherd in the ways of Bob Dylan, and it was this guy named Paul Williams. And I don't mean the actor, songwriter, star of Phantom of the Paradise, that Paul <laughs> oh. Williams, who you may know. Yeah. This is another Paul Williams. This is, oh my God! Let's not let's not start already. Evan. We're not doing movie talk. <laughs> De Palma overrated. We're not. Let's not start already with 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 divide like, with divisive film opinions. We'll stick to divisive Dylan opinions in this uh, show. Paul Williams is uh, one of the like among like the first generation rock critics. Uh, he founded a magazine in the sixties called Crawdaddy, which predated oh, Rolling Stone as being he, like a music magazine. He was Crawdaddy. Oh, yeah. Paul Williams. And the artist that he's most associated with writing about is Bob Dylan. And Mm. I feel like especially like for like the pre-internet fans of Dylan getting into him, his performing artist books, uh, which came out in the 80s, uh, were really critical, I think, for younger people getting into getting into Bob. And, you know, I I often refer to Clinton Halen as the Dark Prince. Of Dylan Indeed. authors, Paul Williams is 
the opposite of Halen. He is the John the Baptist of <laughs> Dylan authors. He's like an evangelist for Bob. He yeah. is so positive, just loves Bob. Very Jokerman mindset before there was a Jokerman mm. mindset, really. Like he was Wonderful. stumping for like Under the Red Sky. He's stumping for like the gospel tours, like before that had the revisionism benefiting that. Uh, he was so great to read as you're getting into Bob because he has just had this infectious enthusiasm uh, for Bob to the point like where once you get a little bit deeper into Dylan, it's almost like a little bit too much. You know, it's like he's a little too positive. He's never ever critical of anything Bob does. So like, you know, maybe later on you want something a little more nuanced, but at the beginning he's like the perfect, like older brother, older sister, cool record store clerk figure, for people getting into Dylan, especially I think in the eighties and nineties, he has a book uh, that came out. Uh, trying to figure out when this was, it would have been like uh, it was like late nineties. It's called "Watching the River Flow," and in this book, he actually writes a lot about live Bob Dylan at a time where these tapes were hard to find. Mm-hmm. And he writes about this show, November eleventh, nineteen ninety two, takes place in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. And I'm not going to talk too much about that because that might be a fun show to talk about down the road here on never ending stories but i was really into this uh show when i finally found it because it was a very sort of like jazzy almost like it, like very dead like show he actually opens with west la fade away which is a grateful dead song from the 80s oh really right and wow. uh the, and a lot of the songs are stretched out there's you know, there's like a jamminess to it this is like early like winston watson era like mm-hmm. when he joined the band in the fall so like that made me want to check out like other shows from 92 and there's another show that like the day after that in youngstown which is really great and then funny enough november 3rd is when good as i've been to you came out his 40th record all acoustic uh folk standards came out november of third of 92 so i started exploring the rest of 92 trying to find like well i like this sort of dead like improvisation feel to these shows so i end up in may of 92 may 9th i find this tape and it is the opposite of what bob (laughs) is doing in november i described this show to you guys originally as like metal bob dylan like it's it's like one of the hardest rocking Dylan shows I've heard of any period. But I realized from listening to it that it's really like grunge Bob Dylan. Yeah, like yeah. This is like the peak of the grunge era. I think the Pearl Jam record 10 went platinum in May of 1992. And uh, I actually read this interview Winston Watson did with Ray Paget on his great blog, uh, Flagging Down Double E's where there's a quote in there, and this is, again, Winston doesn't play on this show we're talking about, but he says flat out that Bob wanted to rock in 92. Mm. Like, Neil Young was was collaborating with Pearl Jam. Rock was the thing at the time, and he was trying to compete. And you can hear it on this show. There's some major shredding on this tape. Very much so. That I think is incredible, and we're going to talk about, or at least I am, John J.J. Jackson later on in this episode. Uh, I just felt like I want to talk about this because it's so different from a lot of Dylan that we've heard. And it just shows like it's even different from what he did later on in 1992. Yeah. Like even in 92, it's like a world of difference from May to November. So I think it's so fascinating. And I was like, I I love this show. I hope Ian and Evan 
love it as much uh, as I do. Well, you know, you talked about uh, Good As I've Been to You, because you can't not when we're talking about this era. And that is increasingly just like it, the price of Good As I've Been to You has gone up and up. It's gone up and up and up since we first talked about it for, I think, both of us. It's now like one of my favorite Dylan records. Like It's in my top five, I think. Uh, and the funny thing about it in regards to this is that the back cover of Good As I've Been to You infamously uh, is it completely incongruous with the way it sounds. But it has this picture of Dylan looking like he's shredding, like wearing like a leather cut off, like a vest and holding an acoustic guitar, acoustic guitar. as if it's like a, an electric. It, he looks like he's in Metallica. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, the, all those songs are like, you know, from gently to stridently strummed, but there's, it's not, uh, you know, there's not an electric sound to be had on good as I've been to you. So I think that the, the unplugged, uh, side of it is being represented there, but there, there's something of a grunge aesthetic on that packaging and, there are two sides of 92 that I think make it so exciting. And that's this dichotomy between the rootsiest, most basic, essentialized version of Dylan with that return to the ur text of folk music and this kind of flirtation with this raw-edged, harder-rocking, grunge-inflected uh, full band sound. And the the balance and the contrast is really what I think makes this era so thrilling yeah it's a fascinating show and a fascinating sound i think it's a very you pick Stephen, which i'm very glad <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is your first pick um because uh, it's not something that i would have necessarily gravitated gravitated to on my own i i i love it and you know i think we're all gonna love it and talk about why we love it shortly but it's uh it is just like really shocking i think when you first listen to it a couple of these songs in particular and when we were first talking about this because it's a 92 show uh, I was like, oh, this is this is an early Winston Watson gig. You know, I can't wait to talk about that. And then you really you listen to it a little bit, and you're like, it doesn't actually sound like Watson on the kit. And with a little bit of research, obviously, he's not in the band yet. He doesn't come into the band until September '92. Uh, and this was this <laughs> weird random moment when Bob is playing with not one but two players on the kit, and That's it's right. just uh, it's an absolutely extraordinary kind of uh, sound and vibe. One of them, Charlie Quintana, played with Bob on the Letterman Plugs performance. So it's, uh, I think it has some roots in some beautiful Jokerman lore. Um, well, and you talk about Quintana playing with Bob in the Plugs on that Letterman performance. The other drummer, Ian Wallace, was the drummer... For the Budokan tour in '78, shit, I did not. And also that. played wow. drums on Street Legal. Oh, oh my god! So, so wow. this this rhythm section, all of our is, dudes, it's it's mm-hmm. pedigreed as much as any rhythm section in in Never Ending Tour history. Even though, like you said, it is this weird period where he's playing with two drummers, and it lasted from like the end of April to the beginning of September. And I'm with you. I didn't realize when I first heard this show that it's playing with two drummers because it's not like the jam band setup, 
you know, where mm-hmm. it's Grateful Dead or Allman Brothers. They're doing like polyrhythms. Right. You know, there's no drum space here, although that would have been wild if we could have had a drum <laughs> space. Bob space. At a, at a Dylan show. space section. <laughs> they're just playing the same part, but it it's just there to give like this enormous sound to what yes. he's doing, and it really comes through. And I think it makes sense uh, because, like, this is an arena show, you know, and, and I think for me at least and for Evan, you know, we know of Bob as more of a theater performer, right? Um, and he's gravitated away from the arena kind of settings over the last 15, 20 years. He likes these smaller, more intimate, more classical kind of venues. But this is just a big old, like, like basketball stadium, basically, which he was doing during this era throughout all the 90s. Uh, and so, like, putting together a band like this that sounds like this, that fills up that much space, I think, is is the best way to make that sound come across and succeed with this, with this type of music, which is not Neil Young and Crazy Horse kind of music or De- Grateful Dead kind of music. Um, it's not music that is naturally sort of uh, suited for that kind of environment, but it uh, it is as well suited for that environment, I think, as Bob could get it to be. It is, you know, it, we're talking about... Uh... As good as I've been to you coming out, and and I'm with you, Evan, as far as really coming to love that record over time. Even though I think I like World Gone Wrong even more. Like, if we're talking the two acoustic records from really, I mean, they're both really great. World Gone Wrong, I probably gave a little bit of an edge to, but it is an interesting, uh, you know, juxtaposition here where I think at the time Dylan was really looked at as this irrelevant person in pop culture who like wasn't even writing his own songs anymore. Like he's putting out a record of folk standards at a time where like mainstream rock is like hard rock, right. angsty music. It it almost seemed like he was deliberately taking himself out of whatever was happening at the time. And, you know, this show coincides. It, it's the same month that Bob turns 51. So, you know, he's getting older. Uh, the, uh, 30th anniversary tribute concert takes place uh, six months after this. Mm-hmm. And I'm always struck by like how wooden Bob looks at that concert. <laughs> to me, he looks really uncomfortable. He's not in his environment at all. Not it, it looks miserable there. And then you hear this show and it's like, wow, okay, when he wasn't at, at MSG being treated as a museum piece... It actually was like cutting loose and also doing like really cool and radical rearrangements of his songs. Like we talk about that with Dylan. There's songs here where I, I've never heard them like this. And <laughs> there's one in particular where like I had no idea what song it was, even when it was over. I had to like look at right. the track listing. Which I some people hate with Dylan. I'm always excited when. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> that's, that's the point of this show. That's the point of the whole show we're doing here. Is like the fun and the thrill of that moment of recognition when it's like you see the thing that you recognize in a new guise. That's the whole like. You probably just don't know the song that well in the first place. Yeah, if, if you can't recognize you. it, exactly. Uh, one uh, other little just bit of interesting context and background, I think, because uh, this is a generational uh, 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 t- program here. Uh, Evan and I as millennials and Stephen as uh, you mean, uh, the you mean emissary. Multi-generational? Of, multi-generational, yeah. Uh, uh, Stephen is the emissary of Generation X. Uh, I was two weeks old when this show <laughs> took place. This was May wow. 9th, 1992. I was born April 23rd, 1992. Just a few, you know, hop, skip, and a jump down the 101 uh, in Southern California, uh, Evan was negative two uh, at this was moment. But a glimmer in 
in the eye. In the eye. What? Uh, how? How old would you have been in '92, Stephen? At the time of this show, I would have been fourteen. Fourteen. I would, so I would have as, been about like I was four months shy of my fifteenth birthday. And as we know, thanks to your recently opened Substack, you have uh, you've been digging into the archives, your own personal back pages of all of the rock record reviews you were writing for your hometown newspaper uh, at the ripe old age of what fourteen, fifteen, right? Um, how how dialed into Bob were you at this moment? You know, just as a you know someone who has obviously gotten much more dialed or gotten as dialed into him as you can be at this point. Not dialed in at all. I mean, he was someone I was obviously aware of, and I was reading rock books at the time, and I was aware of Bob Dylan's significance, and he was someone that I wanted to be a fan of, but I could not connect with right. what he was doing. It was too many words. The songs were too long. You know, the voice, I couldn't wrap my head around. It was much easier at the time to embrace someone like Neil Young, who has a more obvious melodic quality to his music. It's more sort of immediately beautiful when you hear Heart of Gold or, sure. you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, all that stuff. So, and in the 90s, particularly this part of the 90s, Neil Young was the man in terms of like the canonical singer-songwriters. Yeah, I mentioned that before. Neil was much more sort of aligned with like the young rock bands at the time who would gravitate to him because they gave them gravitas and he gravitated to them because it made him look hipper than most 60s boomer rock stars right. would have been at the time. And Dylan was just, again, totally off the map. And I mean, I, I, I write about this in the liner notes to Fragments, the upcoming bootleg series about Time Out of Mind, that there was a long period where it was just assumed that Bob Dylan was not going to really be a significant songwriter again. Right. That he was, and even in his own mind, I think he felt like, well, I, can, I have enough songs, I can play them on the road, and maybe I don't even need to make records. You know, and yeah. he made these acoustic records, I think, as almost like a holding pattern in a way. Exercises, uh, yeah, just to yeah. sort of keep his, keep his mind and, and spirit busy. So it is amazing to go back, especially to these pre-Time Out of Mind era shows where I think like, well, I could have gone to some of these shows <laughs> and I kick myself because it, it would have been amazing. Right. But it just wasn't something he was looked at as like a, a nostalgia act, I think, right. by people who weren't clued into him, what he was doing. You know, it was very much about the 60s, I think, in terms of his image, which is so funny to talk about now because it's so far divorced from how certainly fans think of him. No one would just think of him as a 60s guy. There's a lot of people that don't even listen to the 60s. I guess you two would be included in that. Uh, or you don't dwell on that period. There's like, there's like other <laughs> decades uh, of his career. Uh, but it's so fascinating digging into these tapes because you can hear that as a live act. He wasn't thinking of himself as a nostalgia act, I don't think. No, no. Uh, you know, he was exploring and inventing. And and that, I think, comes across better than it does in the 80s here. Uh, you know, there's, like, all the period in the mid-80s, which you hear some of on, like, Real Live, and even, like, the Slane show, like, it's kind of like flirtations with almost, like, hair metal tendencies in the instrumentation. It's kind of like, 
kind of like aggressively hard rocking to the point of a lack of subtlety. And the the sort of grungy aesthetic of this period really suits him. I feel like he naturally gravitates toward that. It's not so different from Planet Waves, which kind of feels like a pre, like a a, pre, a pre, progenitor of of grunge in in some way aesthetically. You know, it's like scratchy handmade packaging and just kind of just live in the room sound. Just kind of these like songs that feature a raspy vocal somewhere between roots rock and just contemporary rock. I feel like he slots right easily into this moment and you can hear that natural, uh, that, that sense of naturalness. Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting looking at 92 is that it, it does feel like the beginning of like the classic nineties era of the never ending tour yes. because mm-hmm. you, you had that early G E Smith era. And then there was that weird period after he left where he was basically auditioning guitar players <laughs> on tour and he's using like guitar techs and stuff. And, you know, it, it's, and there's like, th- like three rhythm guitar players on stage and like Bob's playing lead. Just like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? And then, you know, in 92, you have like John JJ Jackson coming in and he's going to be there basically until like Larry Campbell comes in for like 97, 97 time out of yeah. mind era, but like that middle nineties eras, John JJ Jackson, obviously of Tony Garnier there, Bucky Baxter, another person who started in 92. Yeah. This is Bucky's first year. Uh, you've got this two drummer era, but then Winston comes in at the end of 92 and you can tell that it's going to start coming together. And this is like the point like where it hasn't quite come together yet, but it's getting there. And right. it's like this, it's almost like the beginning of the, of the, like if you listen to those 88 shows with where it's, you know, the, the trio and Bob, it's very garage rock. It's, you know, everything is played mile a minute. And this mm-hmm. show has that feel a little bit, but because Baxter's there, you do get that country vibe that is so intrinsic to like his era in the band. So I don't know. It's a fascinating period. I think it's a great show. It's like the beginning or maybe it's like the beginning of the beginning of the end of the beginning <laughs> with this, with this gig. But yeah, it, there's a lot to dive into here. I'm curious to hear what you guys love and what you didn't love. Diving in podcasters delight. Everyone's everyone's favorite action to do on a podcast. Let's talk about pretty good. Did, did, did that make any noise? I didn't hear anything. Yeah, it, it does. It cuts yeah. it out over Zoom. Zoom oh, cuts say. out loud noises like that. Oh, so for the folks at home, we don't. It's like our monitors aren't working on stage. I exactly. couldn't hear the harmonica blowing, but I saw it touch his lips. So I'm guessing yeah. it's the blown painfully in the wind. loud sound. Believe it or not, <laughs> we were spared, but you weren't. <laughs> pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. Stephen, what do you like about this show? 